From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Many people are complaining this election is minimally about policy. Labor is making itself a small target. The coalition is not putting forward any vision for the future, but rather just warning people not to risk change. Well, today we're going to delve into what limited policy there is on offer. We have with us Danielle Wood, the CEO of the Grattan Institute, which is a think tank that specialises in policy analysis and prescriptions. Danielle Wood, how disappointed are you with the policy debate at this election? And why do you think it is as parlous as it is? Look, it's hard not to be disappointed as a person that that really cares about policy and and believes in the power of policy to make Australia better. Um, I think, you know, there was a lot of optimism when we were coming out of COVID that that this might be a period of genuine policy reform. You know, it certainly was a period that laid bare a lot of challenges. Uh, We saw trust in government go up. uh, And, and, you know, there was a lot of talk of building back better in the sense that government might do some of those big things. Uh, But but clearly that's not the election we're in right now. Why is it parlous? It's a big question. I think, you know, there are clearly some structural forces at play. You know, it's a much more aggressive sort of shouty media environment, which I do think makes parties more risk averse. Um, We've got a more professionalised political class. um, And with that, I think there's become a lot of pressure on on winning as opposed to, you know, why why are we winning and what are we going to do? But on top of that, I think probably Labor took the wrong lessons from the 2019 election loss. I don't think that result was a referendum on every single policy they took forward. Uh, It might have been a referendum on the fact that they had a a very big policy agenda. And so they probably were right to scale it back somewhat. But I think it has made them um, very risk averse with what they're putting forward. Now, you've nominated childcare as one of the uh, important things that ought to be dealt with. And Labor is putting forward an alternative to the government system, which has just come into effect, been changed and come into effect. What's the problem with childcare and how do you evaluate what's on offer? The the problem is really that out-of-pocket costs for for childcare are very high and that is uh, stopping a lot of parents, uh, mainly mothers with young children who would actually like to be working more from doing so. And, you know, in a world where we've got very tight uh, labour markets uh, and, you know, very uh, trained set of women, that's that's a very poor outcome for the, the broader economy. So what we need is, is policies that reduce those out-of-pocket costs, which provide more financial incentives for, for people to increase to work or to increase their hours. Uh, Labor's policy does go further than the coalition's. The coalition's is targeted at bringing down some of those high out-of-pocket costs for people for with two or more children in care. Um, So those are people that do face very high out-of-pockets. Labor's extends further to to families with one child in care uh, and and it's bigger in its effect. So I think Labor's policy is getting us much closer to where we need to be, which is a world where uh, a mother with with children in care can make a decision on how much she wants to work based on what works for her family, um, as opposed to being very constrained by the fact she can't actually afford to work more because childcare is so expensive. There has been some criticism that the Labor policy is too generous at the upper end. Do you think that's a valid criticism? 
Uh, no, I think, you know, there are, at the moment, these disincentives are there actually right across the income distribution. That was something that we found when we did the work. And, you know, there are there are a lot of um, productivity benefits of having, you know, very well-trained, highly paid women go back into the workforce as well. So I think the economic case exists right across the income distribution. Um, frankly, you know, a lot of the attention has been on families with very high incomes. They're, they're a tiny fraction of, of the total. So, um, you know, whether or not you cap it at 500000 or not um, makes almost no difference to the, the, the cost of the policy because it's such a small fraction of families that you're talking about. Now, Labor has also put forward a policy on aged care, but it's fairly limited, although it does also say it would support an increase in wages for workers in this sector, which is obviously very important. Do you think what uh, is being talked about in terms of that Labor policy is enough to deal with the problem, or do we really need a much more structural reform of the system? Look, I think what the Labor policy does is, you know, pick up a lot of the quality recommendations that came out of the Aged Care Royal Commission. The Coalition has done that too, to, to some extent. The Labor has gone further and, and really picked up some of the more aspirational targets that the um, Aged Care Commission put forward around, you know, dealing with home care waiting lists, the number of minutes that, that workers can spend with patients in care, having 24-hour nurses at all facilities. Uh, so I think you know it, that's a really important step in shoring up quality, and I think all of us were were shocked at you know what came out of that aged care royal commission and, and how some older Australians were being treated in those facilities. What it doesn't do it doesn't look at questions of the governance of the system, and that's something that the the royal commission said was important. How are we actually monitoring and oversighting the spending of money, and and how these things are being delivered? So I think that is still a gap for, for both parties to deal with. Uh, the workforce issues, as you say, are very real. Um, we have huge amount of trouble, you know, attracting enough workers at the moment, let alone what we're going to need going forward as the population ages. So we absolutely have to look at pay and conditions for workforce. Uh, there is currently a case before the Fair Work Commission. Uh, Labor has committed to updating funding arrangements to 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 allow that um, decision to be flowed through straight away you know I suspect the coalition would have to do exactly the same thing so uh, I think I think that that will happen in in coming months as that case has passed down uh, and then there's a more fundamental question of course how we pay for all this uh, it, it is expensive it is going to be a rising cost the the Royal Commission talked about uh, an income tax levy uh, neither side have have either raised that or or the question of people making a bigger contribution where they can afford to do so. And I think that that is the challenging discussion that we were going to have to have at some point. Well, just mentioning uh, that levy brings to mind the fact that it does seem in this election, maybe elections these days, you can't have losers that neither side is willing to say, well, Yes, some people will will lose out through higher taxes or whatever, but we need certain things for our society. Is this a real problem of today's politics? I think it does leave us in a, a really difficult position or certainly leaves whoever forms government in a, in a difficult position because we are now in a world where you know we've come out of COVID with government much bigger than, than what we went in. Um, so we've you know baked in this higher spending on aged care, higher spending on defence, a higher spending on the NDIS. In fact, size of governments increased about 2% of GDP, which is you know, pretty extraordinary. Uh, yet we've had no conversation about how we, how we pay for that 
Um, so that could be, you know, looking for, for savings in some of these areas. It probably will involve uh, taxes having to rise a bit as a share of the economy. Uh, but at the moment, uh, voters would have no idea um, how either party plans to, to bridge that gap over the medium term. So I think it is an issue because I think those problems don't disappear because we don't talk about them, but we're, we're not willing to acknowledge them in the context of an election campaign. A Conversation Economics Society of Australia survey of 50 leading economists at the start of this campaign nominated climate change and the environment as the most important issue in the election. And yet, it is not front and centre in the day-to-day questioning of the leaders and in the debates even. Why do you think it's not being talked about much? It is a wonderful question. Uh, I was one of the economists that, that filled out that questionnaire and I certainly put it as my number one. Um, look, I think it's, it is an issue for a lot of Australians. It certainly shows up in, in top issues for the public and it, it's very visible. Um, you know, we, we know that natural disasters will be more frequent and, and more severe as the climate changes and we've, we've all seen firsthand over the past few years about how devastating that can, can be for, for parts of our country and, and around the rest of the world. Uh, it is a massive economic issue and, you know, I think it's really interesting to see economists so galvanised by that. We need to get on the path to net zero by 2050. Both major parties have signed on to that as a target. Uh, that is a massive economic transition and, frankly, if we we don't start making serious headway over the next decade, we're going to leave ourselves with a very large and, and very disruptive task through the 2030s and 40s. Uh, so why isn't it getting talked about? Uh, I think it comes back to that first question again. People are afraid. Um, I think the media environment is challenging for the parties. It's, it's you know, it's been a perennial. Uh, we, we've really struggled to, to shift the dial on this in this country for the best part of 20 years uh, because it seems to be weaponised and, and picked up as a political plaything, and it's very difficult to have a serious policy conversation in this space. I suppose we should make the qualification here that the so-called teal candidates are obviously talking about it, so their vote will, in a sense, be a bit of a measure of the community's feeling about whether it should be elevated. Yeah, that's right, and I think they, I mean, they really have sort of sensed that gap between the the concern in the community uh, and the, the attention given to it by the political class. Uh, it probably is worth noting that Labor and Coalition both do have some policies. Um, you know, I think the Labor policy around using the safeguard mechanism to reduce industrial emissions um, is a, a sensible one uh, and, you know, trying to speed up the development of the grid to, to bring in more renewables also makes a lot of sense. Uh, but it's it's not the kind of big bang change that that we we might need to to meet some of those more ambitious twenty thirty targets. Housing unaffordability is on the minds of many Australians. Yet what's on offer in this uh, campaign is pretty small beer, isn't it? How should we be tackling this issue? Can we tackle it? Indeed, it's a it's a challenging issue for for governments to tackle. There, there's not a silver bullet, and certainly not an overnight silver bullet. And, you know, part of the, the big run up in asset prices has been the fact that interest rates have been very low. Uh, and, you know, that and that's been for good reason. Um, so that, you know, there's other goals there about trying to keep people in work, etc. But the side effect uh, has been a, a big run up in asset prices. And, you know, that's a very hard thing for um, particularly for younger people that, that really um, now struggle to think that they will ever be able to afford their own home. And we certainly see you know, big drops in, in home ownership rates in the statistics. 
Uh, so what can politicians do? Uh, single biggest thing we can do is try and boost supply. Uh, that is largely in the hands of the state and territory governments and the planning regimes, but there's certainly been a push and I think it is a good idea for federal government to try and incentivise them to do some of that hard work. It is politically hard uh, to say you're going to increase density um, in inner and middle ring suburbs, but you know that that is what will make a biggest the biggest difference to price over time. Uh, and you know there's good reasons why Commonwealth should try and encourage them to do that because they will get part of the the economic dividend from that. Uh, I think we should look at tax breaks for investor housing. Uh, 2019 election, we were talking a lot about capital gains tax discount and, and negative gearing. They they won't be a silver bullet, but I think they do help, and they certainly help more houses go to owner occupiers uh, rather than investors. And and then I think you know one of the schemes that is around at this election is the home equity scheme. Grattan has advocated for that in the past, so obviously I do think it is a good idea. And because there is a group out there that really do struggle with that deposit hurdle. They're, they're able to meet loan repayments, but they struggle to get in. And that can be groups, not just young people, that's groups like older women that maybe have had a more disrupted work history. Helping them overcome that de- deposit hurdle and get into the market is a, a way to deal with that issue for, for a select group of people. So I think we, we're ultimately going to have to have a number of policies in place. It did sound as though that scheme was a bit complicated though because if your circumstances changed then maybe you had to sell the house or buy out the government or whatever. Oh, I think that's a bit of a scare campaign. I don't I don't think that's the intention. I think the income tests are there to, to work out whether you qualify. I, I don't think if your circumstances change then it moves you into a different state of the world. So under the Grattan Institute proposal, what would happen if your circumstances changed? Nothing at all. Nothing at all. Let's move on to economic management. Anthony Albanese said this week he supported a rise in the minimum wage of 5.1%. That's the latest annual inflation figure. Now, the government and business have been in full attack mode over this. What's your view? I think probably naming a number was was the mistake there. I mean, I think clearly wages need to rise. They they have been growing too slowly for, for too long. And, and certainly we actually expect that we will start to see wages move given tightness in the labour market. And certainly that's what the Reserve Bank governor was was anticipating when, when they moved on the cash rate last week. He certainly said that business liaison is, is suggesting that those wage pressures are starting to build in the economy. You know, what we really want to see is, is wage growth kind of more in the range of, of three to four percent. The risk of um, you know, wages kind of jumping up straight away to to deal with you know what we expect will be a, a sort of temporary blip in in inflation, is that you can end up in a, a sort of a wage price spiral situation where higher wages are then feeding through to higher levels of inflation um, that gets baked into expectations and and you're now in a, a world of um, ongoing high inflation and high wages. So that's not a world we want to be in. We want to be in a world where that inflation rate is coming down over time as the heat comes out of the economy. Um, and so I think, you know, locking in very high wage rises right now is not the right answer. Uh, but that's not to say that wages growing at 2, 2% is a good answer either. So it, it's, it's somewhere in between. We're in for a series of interest rate rises. Should the Reserve Bank be aggressive or cautious in raising rates, is there a risk of pushing households too hard and even taking the economy close to recession? 
Look, that is always a risk um, when you're moving rates up and obviously uh, household debt levels are, are much higher than they have been in, in previous tightening cycles. Um, so look, I think they should be cautious and there, there's a lag between when the RBA moves and, and when that starts to really flow through into the economy. Um, so I think they'll be watching numbers around wages pretty carefully. Um, they'll obviously be continuing to watch the inflation rate very carefully. But, you know, I think at, on the other hand, uh, Reserve Bank Governor, like other economists, really wants to to lock in the benefits of um, low unemployment as well. So, you know, we, we are actually, in terms of labour market outcomes, there's a really good story to tell, unemployment with a, a four in front. And so, you know, we, we don't want to kind of ratchet up too quickly and see some of those benefits eroded. We've heard next to nothing in this campaign about tax, even though the stage three tax cuts are due to start in mid-2024 and they're now bipartisan. Do you think these tax cuts which favour higher income earners will be helpful to the economy and is there anything more we should be doing about tax? Uh, Look, I do not think they are likely to be the right tax cuts for the right time. Uh, I think it's worth remembering those tax cuts were calibrated in a pre-COVID world. They were locked in in a pre-COVID world. Uh, and, you know, I said at the time, it's it's kind of crazy to be committing to very big um, tax cuts so far in advance when we, when we don't know what could happen. And uh, now we know what did happen, uh, a major pandemic and a recession. Um, so, look, I, I actually don't think that is a good idea to be um, delivering such large income tax cuts at that point in time, particularly given we're in a very different fiscal environment that that we already touched on before. What what I said in the financial review today is I think we should, if those are locked in for both sides, um, use them as an opportunity to, to do a bit of tax reform. We know tax reform is very hard. Often governments smooth the way by buying reform, um, giving people tax cuts while they're doing things to try and broaden the base. And I think we could do that here. Um, we have a really leaky income tax system at the moment. We have a lot of concessions and thresholds and things which are not well served. They don't serve a good policy purpose. Uh, so, for example, if we package the stage three tax cuts with some tightening of superannuation tax concessions, a reduction in the capital gains tax discount, that would substantially reduce the fiscal cost of the package. It would give us some reform. We'd have a, a much better tax pace going forward. Um, But it's a bit easier to sell because most people would still be getting a tax cut. Um, So that's what I would like to see, a a bit of a package that sits with the stage three tax cuts uh, so that we can at least get something for our money. And what about company tax? Uh, Look, I just don't think that is a priority right now. I think the government's done some things around instant asset write-offs, which are a much more targeted way to, to encourage firms to invest than, than, than cutting company tax. We obviously need to lift the uh, rate of productivity improvement, but there's not much talk about this in any specific terms in this campaign. What should we be looking at doing here? Yeah, that's a million-dollar question. So, look, we often go straight to tax reform and IR reform. And, and yeah, look, I think those are important. Um, you know, we just talked about some of the things we, we might do to try and reform taxes. Uh, But I think we could think about productivity more holistically than that. Childcare, which we talked about before, is is a participation measure, but it's also a productivity measure. When you bring more people into the workforce, you sort of deepen your your talent pools and and boost productivity over the long term. A lot of the opportunities are in reforming things like health and education. 
Uh, so our education outcomes in Australia are going backwards, uh, both compared to other countries uh, and compared to our own outcomes over time. Uh, that is an incredibly important lever for long-term productivity. Uh, and we know a lot about what we could do to make the system work better and improve those outcomes. So I would like to see a focus on education. There are things we can do in health as well, such as primary care reform, which could make a, a big difference to the productivity of the system. And remember, that's a, a big area in the economy and spending. So when you look at, um, for example, the Productivity Commission shifting the Dial Report, which is looking across the economy and saying, what are the big productivity opportunities? Often it is more about um, things in that health and education space rather than just going to the, the usual list. Just on education, picking up that point, why are we going backwards? Uh, well, it's not for, for want of spending. Um, so there are, we've had issues in teacher workforce. Um, so we have far fewer high achievers going into teaching than, than we have in previous decades. Um, there are challenges with, you know, we're asking teachers to do a lot more with, with less. So there's challenges in how they allocate their time. Um, there are issues around the resources that we provide teachers around curriculum. Um, so look, there's, there's there's probably a lot at play. Those are a few of the policy levers, though, that we, we could pull that, that should make a difference. Now, just finally, do we need to be talking more about debt in this campaign? I'm not worried about the current levels of debt in terms of sustainability. Obviously, we come out of COVID uh, with much higher debt levels than we went in with, um, but based on at least the current interest profile, that's it's, it's very serviceable and sustainable. Uh, what I'm more worried about is the the sort of medium to, to long term outlook and fiscal position. And what I mentioned before is, you know, we we've committed to spending more. We've we've not committed to bringing in any more revenue. Uh, and when you layer in the what we know are some of the longer term fiscal challenges with aging population with climate change, with pressure to spend more on defence, you've got a, a pretty potent mix. So I do think we should be talking more about the fiscal position and how we manage those those longer term challenges. But, you know, I certainly am not kind of scaremongering around current debt levels. I think taking on more debt to, to deal with the COVID recession was the, the right thing to do. But we do have to look at that longer term picture. Daniel Wood, thank you very much for that analysis of what policy there is in this campaign. That's all for today's podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you might also like The Conversation's new election podcast, Below the Line, which is hosted by former ABC presenter John Fain. To listen and subscribe, search Below the Line on theconversation.com.au or on your favourite podcast app. Thank you very much to my producer, Ellen Duffy. We'll be back with further interviews soon. Meanwhile, goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com. Thank you.